Hey guys, welcome to the Google Podcast. I am your host, Rob Watson, and today's episode is with yoga teacher James Bogue. Now, I do call him a yoga teacher, but what he does practice is quite different to that. I think he goes way beyond what you'd imagine when you think of yoga teacher. Um, I won't go too much into that now because I'll let James um, tell you all about it. Um, this is probably the longest episode I've done, I think, to date. And to be honest, it could have gone on for many more hours. Um, I really enjoyed spending time with James. I actually went over to York to spend the day with him. Uh, in between his travels, he he travels all over. He Just last year, he spent a few months over in Costa Rica, a place that I would love to go to. He spent about 75 days there while he was writing his book. And um, he mainly spends a lot of time in India teaching out there, but he also travels a lot around Europe and um all over Asia, I think, as well, um, teaching. You know, he's got a really fascinating story. And I first heard of James, it was about 10 years ago, which is discussed early on in the podcast. But what sort of drew me to him straight off was just how much wisdom he had. For someone particularly of a young age, he must have been in his early 30s at the time. And it, I just felt something about feeling really reassured around him and you feel held by him and very well supportive. And I won't go into much more because I'll leave it up to you guys. But before we get into today's episode, I would just like to say thank you to everyone who leaves me a review on Apple. That really helps. And if you haven't yet, please go on there and leave me a review. That would be amazing. Same goes um, with your friends. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends. Um, see if they can get something out of these episodes as well. And if you fancy becoming a member on my Patreon page, I'd really appreciate that. There'll be links in the show notes to them things. Um, so normally before we get into an episode, I play a bit of a intro music from the to-do of my like soundtrack for the podcast. But instead of that, today we're going to be listening to James sing um, the chant to Ganesh Shananam um, to get things going. So let's get moving on that one. Ganesha Sharanam James, I think it was a, a yoga teacher that I knew called Joe. Joanna Kay, yeah. Joanna Kay, yeah. Islington Mill. In Islington Mill. Mill. Yeah. And we'd go to her classes, she'd do them in the space, and then she she said, she told us about an event that was happening, and you were coming 
coming over and, and we had to go. She really, you know, she really admired and respected everything you did. So we came along, me and my wife Ruth, and we did an afternoon session with you and found it really, really powerful, but very nourishing and supportive and grounding. And I remember, I remember us having lunch halfway through and just feeling really good. It was almost, you couldn't necessarily, you couldn't put your finger on it. It was just that feeling of just feeling uplifted and energized. I was like, I like this. <laughs> I, want, I want some more of this. Ah, great. <laughs> and that must have been 2008, 2009, 2010, something along that, maybe that long ago. I think it is uh, certainly at least 10 years ago. Because yeah. um, I remember I first went to Mysore 2008, and I think I met Joe pretty early on in my time in Mysore. Maybe, so if it wasn't like the 2008 to 9, it was probably 2009 to 10. So I think it would have been 2009 or 10 the first time I came. Could have been even 2000. Yeah, it would have been 2009 or 10, I think, the first time I came. Because I came two or three times, I think, while Joe was still teaching there. And, and then I met some other people, Anne and Louise, who have also since met in Mysore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, I remember the first time I went to Salford Mill, we did the class in, in an art exhibition. And that was just lovely, because I remember being able to couple of things on the wall, we were able to reference them in the class. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice space to be, yeah. isn't it, when, with art and stuff. You know, yeah, I know, it's, and yeah, I've, I really enjoyed sharing in that space, yeah. Brilliant. So, at what point did you decide to get into, into yoga and actually become, you know, practicing it and eventually become a, you know, a teacher and go all over the world and explore yeah. it? Well, it's interesting, you know, when people ask, when did you start doing yoga? I mean, the, the way that I understand it now, I say, well, you know, when we come out of the womb, <laughs> there's this beautiful thing in the yoga tradition, there's the idea that all of us are practicing all the time, whether we realize it or not, because all of life is about learning to balance. So we might not necessarily recognize it or it might not seem like it, but we're learning all the time. And when we come out of balance, we learn a little bit more about being in balance. So from the... Indian perspective, they that the purpose of life is, they, they talk about it in having four elements, artha, karma, dharma, and moksha. And moksha means freedom or liberation. Sometimes people think about, oh yeah, it's this great grand thing. But more immediately it's, am I actually acting freely according to my conscience, or am I kind of dictated to by the inertia and the accrued force of my conditioned ideas and my beliefs and all that. And so one of my teachers teaches in India, you know, he says, yeah, moksha, that might be the ultimate aim, but if you want to be free, then you focus on the other three. And he says, make your artha and your karma dharma. So dharma is this kind of key word in the Indian tradition, and dharma means the action which supports or that helps everything stay in balance and rhythm and harmony, you might say. So the idea is that sometimes people talk about that as duty, or the law, or I like that which supports. Because when we do our dharma, when we play our unique role in the well-being of the whole, then we also help ourselves become freer. And so the, our art is the way we make a living, it means the material means of life. And karma means enjoyment. So the idea is make the way you make a living 
make the way you interact with your need for resources and sustenance and all of that, and the way you enjoy yourself, make that in tune with Dharma, and then you will become freer and freer. Um, so there's the idea then that all of us are practicing whether we realize it or not because whatever we do in life we learn a little bit more about is that conducive to balance or not but the first time I ever went to a yoga class I think it was probably in, in the year 2000 I was living in Thailand um, as a teenager I had been exposed to some aspects of yoga practice by one of my basketball coaches so she taught us some stretches and she said oh this all comes from yoga and she taught us to have this nice, deep, calming breath. And um, on a Sunday, I played a lot of basketball when I was a teenager, I was really into it. And um, on a Sunday, I would play twice. I'd go to the local sports hall and go and shoot baskets for like you know, a couple of hours. And then I'd come home before the evening like training session. And always on that, for a, so that for a couple of years of my life, that was very much, maybe longer than that, that was very much a regular thing. And on the Sunday afternoons in my bedroom, I'd be doing all these stretches and this deep breathing. And sometimes I'd just try and meditate. And I don't know why, because it wasn't that I knew meditators, but maybe I'd seen something in a film or... And I would try and meditate. And I just thought I couldn't do it because I couldn't empty my mind. But somehow I tried watching the breath a bit and never got very far with that, but stretching and like the breath and my basketball coach when I was like 13 basically gave me a practice so I would say that having a daily practice started from my early like yeah, from, from 13 there were things that I would do I would go to the court and I would have as well as training with the team there were things I would do by myself and so I had a circuit that I did three times a week and then I had all the shooting drills and the ball handling drills and then because of playing a lot of two or three sports, I started to have a lot of imbalances in the body. So then I started trying to do things to kind of even that out. So years before I ever went to yoga class, I'd been kind of doing lots of movements or postures that are quite similar to what I then encountered in the yoga classes on an almost daily basis. Um, and as a kid, I also had a quite, I don't know, spiritual inclination. I used to go to church. Um, I really liked the music and the quiet. And the church, I grew up in Pickering in North Yorkshire, and the church, the, the Church of England there, it's a very beautiful church with a nice vibe. I, when I come back and visit my father, who still lives there, quite often I'll, I'll well, I won't sneak in, I'll just walk right in, but, but during the week, no one's around, and I'll just sing in there, it's got a fantastic acoustic. But then there came a certain point where I thought, I can't really go to church anymore because when we say the creed, I just, I'm not really down with that, you know, like when it says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, well I thought, and I remember since I did RE, like age 11, 12 at school, and we studied a little about world religions, the very strong impression I had was that at the core, all of these spiritual lineages or spiritual traditions have the same essential teachings, which is about respecting yourself, respecting other people, respecting the nature and the earth and the environment and treating um, not treating others how you would not want to be treated right, this is something that Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about the silver rule rather than the golden rule so never mind treating other people how you would like to be treated but 
more robust than that is not treating others how you would not want to be treated. And so these core ideas really appeal to me and this idea that there is something certainly beyond the immediate manifest. And then the, by the time I got to, like, certainly to university, I started encountering some other literature which really started questioning, well, if I'm praying to God, what, what does that mean? What, what is this God? What, what? And then when I was working, I went after my first degree, which was in French and Italian, I went to work in Japan. And several of my friends in Japan said, oh, you'd really like yoga. And then I was working in Thailand and I got a chance to go to some yoga classes and I did like it. And then I, I'd been doing it, kind of weaving that into my own self-practice, what I'd learned from various classes. And it's actually quite... So when I first lived in, in Thailand, I was teaching in a school in a town called Chachung Sao, east of Bangkok, a couple of hours by bus. And often on the weekend, I'd go to Bangkok and I'd been to an Oasis concert. And at that concert, I'd met quite a lot of people who liked similar music to me. So once I met them, I'd meet them on a Saturday, we'd go out dancing Saturday night. And Sunday, we'd often go to a yoga class. And one of my friends, she called me and she said, James, there's this new yoga studio open. You're going to love it. It's amazing. And it was called Yoga Element Studio. And I went along the next Sunday, having been out dancing all night. Got up about, you know, gone to bed about you know, four, five. Got up about ten, eating a loaf of bread for breakfast. I was young <laughs> and very active. I still played a lot of sports. And then I went to this class and it was, um, it was in the Ashtanga Vinyasa style of practice. And the teacher, Adrian Cox, excellent teacher. And particularly outstanding in the way he was able to weave in very clear, safe, guidelines and instructions in the course of a, a press that was also very flowing and had continuity when it was accessible for people who had different, let's say, physical capacities. And I came out of that class, I had sweated so much, it was, you know, it was pretty hot, it was in Thailand, it was the middle of the day, but I just felt amazing. And I went to the teacher and I said, Adrian, like, do you have a sheet with this sequence on it? He says, yeah, <laughs> gave me the sheet, um, which was, I think, photocopied from one of John Scott's books. And then I started practicing that every day. And on a Sunday, I'd go to the class. And then a year or two later, um, I'd by that time moved to, to Bangkok. I'd been offered a job in university there. And at, at, in that job, I was very, I was often marking essays on a weekend. But I knew that one weekend I wouldn't have essays to mark. And I just dropped by the yoga studio and I saw they had this, this trip happening that weekend. So I'll join that. And it was out of going out of the city to this beautiful green place. And we left early morning on the Saturday. And I remember walking along the street where we had the pickup. And this guy was walking towards me, who then became a meditation teacher. He was called Larry. I remember that day he was wearing a Superman t-shirt. <laughs> but that evening he gave a talk about yoga from the point of view of Kashmir Shaivism. And so Larry was born in, I think, Virginia in the US. And age 15 told his parents that I need to go and study meditation with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And, and he did. Uh, this was when Maharishi was teaching in his intensives on Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. I think it's the late, in the 70s. And during those years of study, Larry had always heard about this great master called Swami Laxmanju, this Kashmiri master who Maharishi had spoken of as the greatest example of a living, realized saint. And in 1990, Larry was then working in Los Angeles, and Swami Laxmanju happened to be in Los Angeles, and a friend of his said, Larry, Swami Laxmanju is sitting in a house in Culver City. So Larry's 
Well, have you got the number? He says, yeah. Have you called them? Not yet. Well, we'll call them and see if we can go and meet him. And they did go and meet him. And Larry's job, even though he lived in Los Angeles, was on New York Times. He would finish, start early morning and finish by early in the afternoon. And then every afternoon he went to go and see Swami Laxmanju. And then went back to Kashmir with him. And uh, basically got given a program for the rest of his life, but became his close disciple. And then that night when Larry spoke about Kashmir Shaivism, or yoga from that perspective. Um, years later, so I always remember you, James, because your jaw was in your lap. And I just thought, oh, this is home. It just felt so resonant. And from that weekend, Adrian was running a teacher training program. And I didn't have any desire at that point to be a yoga teacher. I'd always enjoyed teaching and teaching what I was passionate about. And... Uh, for the previous couple of years, having had a pretty much daily practice, I was just keen to... I'd been reading a bit, and I thought, oh, wow, that looks like a great opportunity to just deepen my orientation, understanding of this amazing thing called yoga. And I was aware that it would have this much broader physical... Uh, much more than physical element, a much more, let's say, inclusive worldview. And, and so I'd been reading a bit, and then I joined that training, and that was eight months every weekend, and then... We also had to go to the studio three, at least three times during the week. So it was very much like a kind of, I was still teaching at university, but it was basically, you know, a morning practice, go to work, go to the yoga studio. And I had a great, it was a great group. And then Larry would give these amazing satsangs on a Sunday night. And it was a really magical time in my life because he'd give this talk on a Sunday and then Monday morning I'm going to work and boom, there's the teaching, just all around me, and so it was super inspiring. And then during the course of the teacher training, Adrian, who was running it, started to get some of us to teach more. And then just kind of realized, oh yeah, I should teach this because I love it. And by that time I'd already been, had quite a lot of, you know, several years of teaching experience. And uh, so then I started teaching in the yoga studio part-time alongside my job teaching English at the university. And as I con after the training program ended, I continued to study with Larry, and we studied Yoga Sutra for a right for a year, like meeting a couple of times a week. Then we did some work on the Gita, and also Larry started to introduce me more into Kashmiri texts and teachings. And I realized I really wanted to study Sanskrit. And at the university I was teaching, they had a Sanskrit department. Just and in the Faculty of Arts, the English department was on the eleventh floor of this building, and Eastern languages on the tenth floor. So. Um, one of my senior colleagues had already been working one-on-one -on -one with this wonderful lady called Ajantasani, very senior Sanskrit teacher there at Chulonkar University. And I asked him if he might ask her if she might take on another student, and she, she agreed. And teaching full-time at the university, teaching more and more classes part-time at the yoga studio. Because I started, first of all, I just did one a week, but it quickly grew to seven a week. And then studying Sanskrit as well and then it became a bit too much so I left the university uh, and just taught yoga full-time and studied Sanskrit for a while and then I went to India um, and then it continued and then I was teaching in as I was uh, in India I went to Mysore it just happened that I met a Sanskrit teacher from Mysore so that's where I went and Mysore there's lots of people go to explore lots of things to do with yoga and there's it's well known uh, for the Ashtanga Vinyasa system. There's a lot of other yoga teachers in, in Mysore. 
and it's also a city with a lot of educational heritage. So lots of seekers go there. And um, the first Sanskrit teacher I worked with there, a lady called Jayashree, she used to teach Yoga Sutra chanting four days a week. And I was staying in her home, the first my first visit and my second visit. And the first visit, so I'd always be there for the chanting class. And one day Jayashree wasn't, wasn't um, going to be in town. And I just volunteered, oh, well, I'll do a kirtan if anybody wants to come. And some people did. And then they invited me to do kirtan every week. And then people started inviting me to, oh, I, would you come to my place? Because uh, when I do kirtan, I'd sometimes talk about the archetypes and stuff like that. And so then invitations started to come to teach here and there. And then that's when it kind of began. And uh, started teaching more on the road. So I'd be in India for some time studying. And then I would also run classes and courses at the place that I then, my third trip in my first, kind of moved into my own place. And then, which I still rent. And over the years now, I've given many courses on the Gita and the Sutras and mythology and hundreds of kirtans there. Um, and over the years, people invited me, and then I kind of got into this rhythm of being in India for part of the year and traveling and teaching. And then, and then there's been various family things that brought me to the UK a lot more in the last decade. It's um, a very roundabout answer to your question. No, it's an amazing answer <laughs> to the question. And I love hearing about when you talk about you know your interest growing up, you know basketball, yeah. but yeah. even you know going to the Catholic Church and stuff like that. The Church of England, it was. Sorry, Church yeah. of England. And how that's acting as a bit of a, you know, as a gateway for what yeah. is to unfold in the future. But yeah. at the time, you know, on to where that, that's how it's going to sort of, it's going to manifest. And it's just, it's nice, isn't it? I think that's important for all of us maybe to reflect back on some of them things when we were younger. Because it seems like you certainly maybe haven't gone off path. You've you've followed that path, and it's taken you on some amazing journeys and Thailand and teaching stuff. But maybe some of us don't follow on with with them things that we're interested in or or develop them. And I think that you touched on earlier on, we might end up taking on board some of our conditioning from family, mm. friends, society, and saying, "No, you you should go down this traditional path." and yeah. This is the way life should be, and you need to, you know, get a mortgage and sell down and, yeah. and continue that path when you've kind of, you know, you've ripped up that little bit of the rule book and gone down your own path. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was just in, in India, and uh, literally three, four weekends ago, I was at a conference in Bangalore, um, and the, the the theme of the conference was authenticity, integrity and ingenuity in yoga teaching and uh, I was part of a panel discussion and the, the person who was leading the panel he said he asked me he said well you know you grew up in this in the west with this fast consumer culture and maybe you were brought up to you know to, to have to achieve and, and acquire and all that and I said well that's not how I was brought up you know <laughs> and I think I was very fortunate that my mother and father um my father was a school teacher and my mum was a social worker and sometimes people, my sister's an actress and I've done this, I've been a teacher but I'm, you know, not like a, a, a different type of teacher to what sometimes people immediately associate with that word. And um, sometimes people have said to me or my sister's like, well your mum and dad were so normal <laughs> and you've both done this kind of different thing. 
But what I feel so grateful to my mum and dad for is that they were both living their passion. Like, my mum actually defied her parents to become a social worker. They would have liked to do something more conventional for her. She was a very bright woman, very intelligent. And um, at that time, it was expected that a woman of her intellectual gifts would have studied a certain field, maybe been a, become a school teacher or perhaps gone into medicine or something like that. And she was clear she wanted to be a social worker and she studied social sciences, which back then wasn't very prestigious. And, and then, she, then she did her whole life working that. And my dad, as a teacher, was very committed to that and did a lot of work with the school community and the wider community. So I had two examples of people who were really doing their dharma, like doing, heeding their calling. And, and I feel like my mum and dad, my father being a school teacher, there was definitely this very strong emphasis on we had, me and my sister had to, to do a, to get to a certain level academically, like before we would have the freedom. But once we'd done that, it's like do whatever you like, you know, just have that so you've got that, that to fall back on. Don't, you know, so for example, when I was in the sixth form, and I was a bit sick of it. Well, you say you can leave school, but you are, we're not, we're not going to house you anymore. You can go down the job centre tomorrow. And, but, you know, if you stay at school, we're happy to support you because we think it's, you know, it's going to set you up. It's going to be worth it. Um, so as long as we'd kind of followed the academic route up to a certain point, there was also this space to do whatever we wanted to do. And living in Asia a lot, I've met in different cultures in Asia, I've met... There's, in some sections of society, there's a very strong um, expectation that people go a certain route. Like in India, for, in South India, amongst certain types of, certain, certain groups of society, the children are expected to become an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, and now software engineers. And anything else is like, the parents are really not, obviously this is just a generalization. But I think I, me and my sister both had that encouragement from our parents to just you need to do what you like and you're good at and what's going to help you maybe contribute to the welfare of the bigger picture because that's I think that's something that we saw in their work they they were both very socially minded I might, might say um, but also going back to the basketball it's interesting because I feel like sports were my first experiences of yoga like the state of integration I remember getting so high like age 11 one time playing tennis Sometimes I, like in the summer at school we put the tennis nets up and I had a couple of mates in the year above me and on a Saturday and Sunday we'd just be there at the tennis course like hours on end and sometimes you just get into this zone and you're just hitting the ball sweetly and just feeling so great and then as I got more and more into basketball sometimes I would access this amazing place of like a state of flow or in the zone whatever you want to call it and later I'd say, oh, that's samadhi, that's a type of integration, that's a type of yogic samadhi, type of absorption and blissfulness. And that kind of alerted me to the reality that this, these transcendent states that go beyond what is the normal day-to-day -day are real. Sports weren't a reliable mechanism for me to access that state, you know. Sometimes I play basketball and I feel really high, and sometimes I feel really frustrated. <laughs> um, but certainly I did have that experience and I think all through my teenage years it, it kept me connected to this kind of spiritual realm somehow. And then also my first teaching experience was, was coaching basketball to younger students when I was still at school. And I had this magical experience then of 
now would call it yoga. I didn't know that's what it was then, but I was really into basketball and had some really good coaches. So when I was given this chance to coach younger kids, it was, I was doing this sports studies course at school and my, one of my teachers gave me this chance to, to, to coach these younger kids for the whole year. And the very first training session, I'd really planned it out. And uh, the teacher gave me, it was like the mentor gave me some really good feedback. But I just realized that I experienced this magic. It's like basketball was the, the so basic yogic meditation. We give our mind and our powers of awareness something to focus on. And once we've got that support, all the powers of the awareness can kind of come together and get joined or unified around that point. And then we train ourselves in the way of unity and integration and balance and harmony. And what happened as I was coaching basketball was like basketball was that object. I was fully into it, I was fully prepared. And then I think because of that and because of this good ethos that my mentors had also established, the students and I was standing in the shoes of the coach and they were standing in the, the shoes of the players, but basketball was this thing around which we could all gather and grow and have a lot of fun and have that like, feel. Ah. And so that kind of high um, through teaching was also a really beautiful thing that I had the chance to experience when I was really young. And what you were saying about following a path, I think I was really fortunate to experience that that joy because that was when I was 16 and then I wasn't sure about being a teacher for several years even after I'd been teaching full-time for a few years I still wasn't sure and then after about three or four years full-time maybe it was yeah it was in the third year of my full-time teacher I remember one of my colleagues there was this just this chat going on and somebody was talking about, I'd done some been some acting thing at, at school and uh this colleague knew my sister was an actress and she's like oh don't you would you fancy being a full-time actor and then the other colleague's like what are you talking about he was born to be a teacher <laughs> and hearing that from somebody who was a teacher i respected kind of made me realize actually yeah i love i love this teaching business like sharing what you're passionate about like my sister's an actress sometimes you're in a play and you love it and you've got a great role and but sometimes you don't have a job or sometimes you're in a job that isn't such a great role for you. Whereas teaching what you love, every day can be really nourishing. And so I think for me it was a good fit and something I've thought about every day for, for decades. So Amazing. <laughs> and you'll be continuing to teach for many more decades? Hopefully, yeah. That's, I mean, it's also interesting that I feel, like, as I've got older, realising how you know, we're all teaching all the time and how that can take many different forms. But I do love working with, with a live group and you know the yoga texts and the yoga system, it's so robust, so practical, so down to earth, that whenever we gather to explore a body of teaching, it's always so vital and so alive. So I certainly love that and hope to do lots more of it here. Just on the... Um idea of teaching there was something I noticed on your site which really resonated with me so I just I wrote it down so I just you know and it was you know do not believe that anyone can teach anyone anything yeah. the best we aim for as a teacher is to create foster invite a situation in which learning is more likely to occur yeah so you're kind of creating the space for it rather than telling people yeah this is how it should be yeah I mean this is like going back to that that my very first 
basketball training session where I was in the role of the coach, the thing that my mentor told me at the end, he said, he, he was very positive and gave me a lot of really <laughs> inspiring praise, but he said that the one thing I would really focus on doing more of, they know more than you realize. They know more than they realize. So invite, rather than telling, invite them to put it into their own words. So an example recently, I was walking in, just in India, and I, there's a lake that I, near my house where I walk quite frequently, and some friends we walk in, and one of the guys is, is a physiotherapist, but used to be a swim coach. And he was telling me about the way they train the kids to swim. And what he always does is, he, he says that they, they get the kids to come to the recognition in their own words that I will float, the water supports me. So they never tell them that, they, get, they invite them to take, like a, put your body into a ball in the water. Then they ask the kids, what do you experience? And they never, they never that's all, they just give them that question, what do you experience? And then once the kids start saying, oh, the water pushes up against me, I float. Once the kids start to put that into their own language and it's their own recognition, then they have it. And so that's so powerful and then in having confidence to be, to swim in open water and to be much more confident as they learn to swim. And I feel that, you know, if you tell a human being, for example, okay, Rob, think of anything you like now, but don't think of a red Ferrari, what happens? You know, it's like, it's a superhuman who can stop themselves thinking of a red sports car. So the yoga method recognizes this. It, the, the texts, everything is an invitation, it's an empowerment. And so I just th think that's one of the things that I find so beautiful and inspiring in the yoga tradition is the way that the teachings are conveyed and set out, so practical. It's always an invitation, it's not so much didactic or prohibitive, it's always like inviting us to come to our own conclusions, not giving us answers but questions for a skillful, skillful ongoing inquiry. What I've always enjoyed about yoga as well is when you go into a class, regardless of people's backgrounds, what they do in profession, every, it's a great leveller. It's like everyone's there is just on the mat. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I love that term, people who say, I practice yoga. It's not like I've achieved it. It's like I'm practicing it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and that just something that just resonates with me more rather than feeling like it's somewhere to get to or there's, yeah. a, there's a, an achievement and when I get there I'll be happy or I'll you know and obviously it'd be interesting to hear your take on this that yoga itself has become extremely popular mm. over the past few decades um, but then there's also the side of it maybe you see where it's like really competitive at times there seems to be a lot of ego in particularly maybe the way the images are portrayed of people and you know it's not to judge it's just almost just an, an awareness of it an acknowledgement mm. of it um, so it'd be nice to hear your thoughts on that well it's interesting because what I feel is you know at this conference I was recently at in India I was quite struck by just you know some of the Indian teachers there were you know really I didn't realise how offended and uh worried some of them are by what they're seeing in, in other parts of the world and I almost feel like 
the like obvious place on one hand it's great that so many people have heard of yoga or maybe experienced some some aspect of yoga but the yoga techniques or practices that people often encounter in a yoga class on a mat in an asana class or maybe with some breath work it's just a tiny drop in the ocean of yoga techniques which is also a drop in the ocean of the bigger picture of yoga which is about basically making everything that we do conducive to that experience of wholeness or integration. So if you think yoga, it comes from a word which means to join or to connect or to unify. So yoga is practical, so recognize if we, if we want to experience that in life, everything we do is training. We get good at what we practice. So we can take recourse to techniques that kind of help familiarize us, us at a deep level with what it means to be in a unified state. So the idea is that the techniques, they're just training for the rest of the day, or they're kind of tuning the instrument. So if you think of like a great musician, if the instrument isn't tuned, even if they're a virtuoso, it's not going to sound great. But the more we... And if you go to see a great orchestra, before every movement they will tune and then retune. And it's the same idea with practice, that the techniques they're just to help us practice the whole time. They're to help give us a taste of what it means to be centered. So when we come off center, we can respond and notice more easily. And once we notice, we're empowered to do something about it. So I feel that actually the spread of yoga, on the one hand, is very inspiring and is great, but there's a little bit of a downside that I encounter in that what I notice is that Lots of people now think they know what yoga is and they just think it's this thing that one can do on a Thursday evening, have a little stretch or have a little relax or chant a couple of mantras and then do this sequence and then go home. And it's just something you do. And not like what, in contrast to what you were saying about this thing that you practice all the time and for your whole life, it becomes just, oh, on Thursdays I do yoga and on Tuesdays I go to my book club and on Saturday I go to the football or whatever it is. And it's just this thing that's very narrow and limited. And so this gap between, let's say, posture-based yoga and the bigger picture yoga, I think there's a bit of a, a chasm there that needs to be filled and bridged, and that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and I'm not the only one. I know other people who have a similar aim or aspiration. So I'm, the book I'm writing at the moment is intended to introduce a much broader public to an understanding and recognition of what yoga really is and how it's so practical, so helpful that we can all, anybody can work with it. You don't have to do any particular technique, but the yogic principles are very broad, very robust and very inclusive. Um, so for me, when, when I see people thinking that, oh, that's just something and I've done it now, that's a bit sad because like, I feel that humanity is really thirsting for what yoga has to offer, which is a very robust, time-tested method to help us live in a more harmonious way. And the 21st century are facing tremendous challenges as a species, and yoga's only been around for thousands of years, which it has. You know, maybe sometimes people hear that a text has been around for 2,000 years, and they think, oh, yoga's been around for 2,000 years. No, no, no. That text was the distillation 
of a living tradition that had already been put to the test very, very thoroughly over many, many generations before it was put into that text form. So yoga's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And already, 2,000 plus years ago, it had been thoroughly tested by consecutive generations of research scientists who observed how its principles can help human beings deal with the reality of life. And so I feel you always got so much to offer and I feel sometimes people are getting a, a less than whole picture of how rich and practical and helpful the resources it has to offer really are. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what I'd like to think is that people will eventually move into that space yeah. where they might have to transition from, say, I don't know, there's a place that I go past where I, I run a couple of times a week and we go past one place and there's like this uh, cross-training, cross-fit yeah. thing. And God, is that intense. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like crazy yeah. in some ways. And I'm like, wow, you know, must those people must really need it in some ways. But... Um, what I'm getting at is like eventually they may transition to start doing some yoga they might do it in some gym class part of the gym membership and there's some yoga classes and eventually it could lead them you know down the path more of really realising it and studying and seeing how it's more holistic more about balance for your entire life yeah yeah I think that's that's starting to happen and I think the it is a natural consequence but the, the difficulty some of my Indian teachers, one thing I find really fascinating as I've, I've lived in several countries is that I met some people who were, you know, that's really not average people. People have done a lot of deep inner work and some people who are considered masters or gurus. But what I see is all of us are still the product of our upbringing and our background and our experiences and our conditionings. And some of my Indian teachers have a perception that in modern Western secular society, with the underlying Judeo-Christian framework and this very strong materialist uh, influence as well, that in that dominant worldview, money, sex, and power are so dominant that it's hard for people who've grown up in that to realize how much we are dominated by ideas of the need to for, of, for financial growth and and so on. And I just I find that interesting that you know they see that from their perspective. Of course, somebody might point to them and say, "Well, we can see your blind spots as well," but. This idea is an, an idea very practical in yoga that I think it's in many spiritual traditions that you know when you're a human being, we only have two eyes. So we're going to see duality. We're going to see dark and light and day and night and up and down and expansion and contraction. This is the reality of life. But with these two eyes, there's always more that we can't see than what we can. Even if I try to look at myself, I can never even see quite half of myself, you know? And so we have these blind spots and the idea that yoga practice is really about looking in ways that reach beyond our habitual ways of looking. And that's not easy, it takes practice. 
And when our culture has certain blind spots, it can be harder to overcome those because the blindness is almost a group project when it reinforces some of the status quo. So I think one of the challenges that we face is that real yoga does not fit in with the dominant economic model that's in place of constant growth and if you're a good yoga teacher your students will stop coming to class because you'll empower them enough that they don't need to come to class anymore and you'll reconnect them with their own sovereignty so they'll become their own authority and they'll deepen their self-trust and they'll get familiar with a, a support network of structures that means they don't need that external validation anymore they don't need to buy something to feel good. They don't need to check what the trendy magazines are saying they should do to feel good about themselves because they'll have become much more connected to their own innate feedback mechanisms. So a really good yoga teacher is in the business of making their work obsolete. And that's such a... It doesn't really, it's like one of, it's a hard sell. And also you, you're asking people to work, to look into our blind spots, to look into the places where we might have been our own worst enemy. One thing that I've encountered a lot is that when people have an experience that is amazing, you know, it goes beyond what we're used to, at the moment it's like, wow! But if that's a one-off experience... If it's not repeated, it's like that experience that is helping me connect to this knowing deep inside that something greater than the way I'm living day to day is possible becomes like a threat because it's gnawing at me. Like here I am in my day to day and somehow I'm not quite completely satisfied. But, but I know how to do this. I know how to live in this way. And I don't know how to live in this more vast, inclusive, transcendental or exciting way. I'm not sure about that. And so the mind, like I said, the mind struggles with things it's not experienced. So it resists the change. And that's why in yoga you have to practice, you have to repeat the experience. So when I repeat the experience, then the mind catches up and realizes, oh, okay, I'm actually better off like this. When I invite all of myself into the present moment, oh, wow, it feels great. It's worth making that effort. But let's say, for example, we have an experience that takes outside our comfort zone and we feel fantastic when there's a group supporting us or the teacher guiding us. I've seen this happen in so many different aspects of life. If we don't repeat that experience, the ego mind complex rebels against it. So in my own life, for example, I had an, an, an opportunity to change my lifestyle significantly. And um, this is in the realm of relationship and it would have meant significant changes and I just didn't feel it was like so overwhelming to so much unknown and later as well I was just scared I was like I was I wanted that but I, I hesitated and shrank back from it because the glimpses I had of it even though they were very inspiring and edifying they hadn't quite generated enough momentum to usher me out of the influence of the inertia of the existing dominant pattern, if that makes sense. 
And so I think this is one of the challenges that yoga faces. It's like we're in the business of inviting ourselves to grow. And growth isn't always easy. Like I, I like the image of like a rose. The tender young stem of a rose isn't going to be able to share its beauty with the world. It has to become this thorny thing, this thing that can withstand the gales and the driving rain and the changes in the weather. It has to become a bit gnarly, <laughs> a bit gnarled, annealed if you like. And then it allows this beautiful fragrance and color and uniqueness to be shared. But first it has to go through that process. Now, the society that we live in we can get used to this kind of uncomfortable comfort zone. So when I say the uncomfortable comfort zone, that like we mentioned going to like school days earlier, yeah? So I imagine most people listening, we all went to school. Now I don't know what qualifications we left with or without, but I'm pretty sure that most of us left, when we graduated school, we, we were experts at sitting in a chair for a long period of time. Now when you're a little kid and you have to sit in a chair for a long period of time, how do you feel? Very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. You don't like it. It's the last thing you want to do. And actually it's a very unnatural thing for a human to sit in a chair for a long time. But we get... Somehow that becomes this, this uncomfortable thing that's blocking the flow of energy in our body, that's closing a lot of the energy gateways in our body, that's actually making us less intelligent because it's disconnecting some of our neural networks. That becomes the norm, that becomes the, uh, the comfort zone. But it's not comfortable. But to come back to that way that's actually more natural, then requires like this rehabilitation work. Yoga's a recovery project. And to become one's own therapist, and to recognize that one has colluded with forces that have brought me into a place where I'm not actually being as good to myself as I could be. It's not the easiest thing to swallow. Um, so I think that's a challenge, is that, that yoga practice means going into the dark recesses of one's psychic shadow land. And that school doesn't teach us about that, you know. Um, once you get invited into the practice, then one can have it experiences and we realize oh when I do that work it's well worth it to, to face my shame or my grief or my anger or my pain that allows me to come out the other end and when I acknowledge my grief it gives way to praise when I acknowledge my pain it allows me to then access pleasure and but if we've never been trained in that it can be very intimidating and I think it's that if you're selling feel good trim your trim your waist or trim your physique when I lived in Thailand people said oh, I want to be slender I'll go to yoga <laughs> I want to have good core strength you know that's a very easy sell but my meditation teacher always used to say you know, if you want to find somebody who will uh, support you in buying a house that you can never really have any hope of being able to afford you don't have to look very far in this world but if you want to find someone who will explore with you the depth of who you really are, you might have to look a bit harder. 
And in the society we live in, it's not such a mainstream thing. But I think the hunger for it is very real. Yeah, it's much needed at this time. And thinking about the school system, and and it does feel like, as you say, it's not supportive for the growth of the child. I am um, I'm working on this side project, a product, a kids product, and I did a lot of research, and it showed that basically all children at the age of three, I think about ninety nine percent of them are considered to be creative geniuses. Yeah. By the time they get to seven, only thirty three percent are. So something drastic has happened in them four years. Yeah. When you get in your 30s, only 1% are considered. So it's that idea of uh, competitiveness, like you say, putting them to sit there, to sit still, to repeat after me, making them feel like they're being judged against someone else. They have to yeah. compete against them. They're getting tested. No one wants to be one in their class. Everyone yeah. wants to appear to be the top. Yeah. And because of that, I think it then affects people willing to take risks in their life. Because For sure risks can be considered well risky yeah. but you get failure associated with it and yeah. failure is considered to be a bad thing growing up when actually it's like if you learn to ride a bike yeah. and you fall off the first time your mum or dad doesn't say to you right that's it you're done you yeah. failed yeah, yeah. it's get back on Yeah. and I think that it's good that we've still got that seed in our life of learning to ride a bike because yeah. that can be the thing that can propel us and maybe move us out some of the the poor conditioning in the school system. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a big, big challenge. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the example of riding a bike because one, one example I use a lot when I'm teaching is like when we learn to walk, how many times do we fall? More times than we can count. But when we're at that age, we haven't yet accrued the idea that somehow I should have it all worked out. Somehow I should be the finished article. And so when the toddler is working to, learning to walk, the toddler doesn't, every time they stumble, think, oh, what a terrible toddler am I falling again. <laughs> they don't think anything. They just, instead of thinking and ruminating, they put into practical use the information they've just acquired and learned by coming off balance. And so they use that to come back into balance. So I think one of the difficulties we face as adults, we get to a certain age, and if we're not very good at something, we, we feel really uneasy. We get, we get used to competence because often the job that we do, we repeat the same types of thing. And yoga encourages when we find something that we, we fail at or fall down at, celebrate. Once we've noticed that we've fallen, ah, I can learn something from this. And they say in yoga, the peak of a human life is 85 years old. So if we can practice the curiosity and wonder of the two-year-old who was just learning to walk, and learning to walk a bit more quickly and all that. If we can maintain that openness to reality and ally that to our growing discernment, then all through life, we can learn as quickly as young kids and teenagers learn. And my first Sanskrit, not my first Sanskrit, but one of my main Sanskrit teachers, his father, when I met him, he was 74 years old. And this man was just, just like a luminous dynamo. And he's 74, he's retired. But he's still, he's very sought after in his community. And that's a beautiful thing in some parts of Indian society, that elders are, are not so separate. You know, elders are still very much involved in the vibrant life of a community. And he's a, they've been father and son, Acharya teachers for, for, for hundreds of years. And um, so people go and, you know, if the people, someone's writing an article, they'll go and ask for his input. And 
But in his retirement, this man is getting his own little organic farm going with heritage breed Indian cows and growing his own veg and doing some research on how you can use Sanskrit for artificial intelligence, you know. Just. But he's still super curious about life. And so he's 74, but he just he's so energized and so energizing to be around. And I think, yeah, he, he said to me, you know, I was studying the Bhagavad Gita with his son and um, we've been doing, we've done a few sessions and I arrive at the house, it's evening time and my teacher's a big man, he fills the doorway and I, he opens the door and says, oh, today father will take the class. I go, oh, wow, this is a big honour to have the class with his dad, who was, he was probably, yeah, he was 74 or 75 at that point. And so I go into the room where he receives people and he's on his cot. And so I sit on the floor and he says, oh, what are you doing, James? So chapter two of the Gita, he says, very good. How many verses have you done? Seven, recite them. So then I recite them and he's not satisfied. And then for almost two hours, these seven verses of the Gita, he recites them with me. And he says, watch my lips. And he says, you must, you must recite, you must get the recitation correct because you know, everything comes from the sound in the Sanskrit. But then he said to me, he says, James, it's very good that you are learning the Gita. But you must promise me that you learn it properly. You must learn it Indian style. Because I know, you know, you're from Britain, yeah? And, you know, you British, you don't know what education is. You know, you've destroyed our education system. You know, you, what is an exam? In the British system, you know the date, you know the time, you know how long the exam will be. You can even look at last year's exam paper. No, no, no. In our tradition, you never know when the test is coming. The teacher will spring it on you when you least expect it, and then you find out if you really know. He said, that's a real exam. He says, education, you know, when you have an exam, what do you do? You cram. And then two weeks later, if I ask you that, you know, you pass the exam with flying colours, and then two weeks later, if you had to do it again, you'd already wouldn't do so well. He says, no, education isn't about cramming in. Education is about drawing forth what is already inside you. And so, in their traditional education system, it's really about that. And they didn't go to schools and sit at a desk. They worked with people who were, let's say, established in a field of inquiry. And so they learned very actively in this very kind of holistic way. And so, yeah, I feel... I know heroic people who are working within the education system to, to facilitate change. But one thing that I notice, uh, I think, is even worse than when I was a kid, is that kids are even less active. And movement's so important for intelligence and for self-trust and authority and being able to navigate difficult situations. I heard this beautiful example recently in India of how the rural kids are so much more intelligent than the kids who've gone to the elite schools in the cities. And there was the teacher was telling you know how well they had this big gathering I think it was Sadhguru this Indian like maintenance big guru guy here and so they have some big program and they invite kids from all over and it's lunchtime and at the facility where they're eating it's kind of built for adults so the sink where you do the hand wash before you eat is too high for the kids to reach these young kids and all the kids from the elite urban school, they all wait in line, waiting for the teacher to come and tell them what to do. And then all the kids from the villages out in the rural area, 
they all just run along happy and then they make a human tower the big kids go down on hands and knees and all the other kids climb up on their backs so they can wash their hands and enjoy the food and they do it all happily without without having to think because they're attuned to their intelligence they're not impeded by this I, you know, I've got to wait till the teacher says so and so I think yeah I agree that's really um, a big issue for us to try to change as a society and in education for sure yeah it makes me um, I have a little bit of a chuckle to myself sometimes when I see people like oh we need to move to this area to get the kids into this good school and because I've, I have this like deep feeling that you know the, the way the you know in this country the British school system is flawed a lot even though there's many many great teachers sure. who are doing the best absolutely yeah. doing the best but I feel it's the system and it's a bit like you were saying before about you know you can only see so much that like you look at your body you can only see so much yeah. you know and I think that's the same case we need to look at it from a different perspective mm. from a higher perspective if we do the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. you know we're we're living in this world now this age where things are changing so fast like if we're putting kids through a school system we don't even know what the world's going to look like in 10 20 yeah. years and i think that system that system was was developed to, to to train people to work in factories and production lines and and very like to to slot people into little boxes and i think maybe that's one of the exciting things about this world is that, that that's changing is that those those boxes yeah. are dissolving somehow but the system I think this is an interesting thing that I always feel as an, at the individual level, the mind struggles to keep up with the soul. Like the soul is often propelling us towards more evolutionary ways, but the mind resists because it struggles with the unknown. And I think systemically as well, that's also the case that we want the intellectual, just want the, the, the scientifically proven justification of something, but often that's just slowing progress down in some instances, I think. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you talk about that in terms of, yeah, the school system is based on the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And people going there now, you know, you've already seen, like my mum, for instance, she, she worked um, in a car factory for many years and now all them jobs have, have evaporated yeah. and now robots are doing them. Yeah. So now we can look at that two ways. One, the ego can be very fearful to think, where's my place now? I'm not going to yeah. have a job. I'm not going to be fed and stuff. But then if we can move to more, you know, a utopian type society eventually where we allow the technology to serve us. Yeah. And it's not about the select few, the elite making absolute billions. Yeah. Um, and the rest living in, in poverty. And that's where I think there's a revolution. And a revolution's happening in our minds now. And like you said about things are changing so fast that the ego doesn't like change. Mm-hmm. It likes comfort. Yeah. But we're, it almost feels like we're going through, we might on an individual level be experiencing 10, 20 lifetimes in this one life because there's so much change. Yeah. Like look at look at the last 100 years. For sure, it's just incredible. I mean, even, you know, just, I was born 1977 and so I grew, I, I grew up before the internet and before like a computer when I was a kid, it was, it was quite a heavy thing, you know, like you could use, at 32K, the first computer I ever used. Maybe your car keys have got more K these days, I don't know, but... Um, and when I was a kid, like, we would play on the street all the time where I grew up, like, lots of time outdoors. Still watch TV. When I look back, it's just, I'm distressed by how much TV I watch. But we did a lot of stuff outside, and I don't see kids getting outside as much. Um, 
And then the internet really is it's extraordinary how quickly... I was chatting the other day with a friend about this, how certain cultural things have changed. Like for me, if I say, for example, to my friend, oh, like, like we said, we're going to meet today at one, yeah? So we met today at one. And I did send a message because I thought I was, I was going to get here later than I imagined, but I was still here earlier than one. But I know I've met people who, if you make an appointment, if you don't message them every, every other day to confirm that it's still on, that they'll wonder whether it is on or not. Whereas for me, it's like if I don't message, it means everything's on, you know? And I had an experience recently with a, a person in India who, a Chinese person who was a, a business person. And four people were, get, were meeting at my house to go, and, to go and walk around the lake. And I made the arrangement with her like three or four days before. Oh, yeah, four o'clock we'll meet and there's going to be this, these other people will be there. And, and um, it comes four o'clock and I didn't switch my phone on because I, I like to do that. <laughs> and this person hadn't arrived. I thought, this is unusual. So I switched the phone and there's messages like, oh, is it, are we still on for today? That she's said, well, of course. But that's changed. For some people, they, they think they're so used to having the phone, that constant instant response and expecting a response and I think my own approach to that is maybe not as common as as that but that's happened very quickly that wasn't possible when I was a kid to, to live like that but people have got used to it so quickly and I think you know we've also become the thing that I find and feel is most important one of the things that yoga can really help people do is to reconnect to nature. Because I, you know, we sometimes people say, "Oh, I heard a guy say I'm allergic to nature." Well, that means you're allergic to yourself because nature's that which is born. We are nature. Everything's connected. That's an in, you know, like an intrinsic teaching of yoga is that everything's connected. So what you do impacts every other aspect of life. But when people become fearful of nature. I think something's gone really... Then, then we're no longer evolving, we're devolving. We're becoming weaker and more and more fragile. And the fact that we use so many things, we don't know how they work. I think that's a very precarious place to be. And our relationship to food and shelter. If the, if the current infrastructure doesn't, is no longer there, how will we manage? And I think that's, that's something that I see as a great challenge for humanity to, to become a little bit more, I would say, realistic about the bigger picture of the natural system that we're part of, rather than this. You know, I think there's an absolute mania that humans have had for many centuries to try to control and dominate nature, I think, which is a ridiculous project. We need to learn to collaborate with nature. Um, yeah, yeah and, and on that it's it feels like for the past few hundred years especially it's just been take 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 mm -hmm. from from the earth yeah and that's I mean in the Indian system you know the, some of the most basic practices is that everything is a, is done with gratitude so this idea of dharma that I mentioned another conference I was in India a few years ago one of the people said you know we might talk about dharma but we all live in a criminal system. We're all embedded in it because we sell what Mother Nature gives freely. 
So as soon as we start to buy and sell land and water, we're criminals because we're taking without... We, we just take it freely from nature and then exploit it. This Something is out of balance. And in the Indian system, and you can still see this in, in India and also if you go to other parts of Southeast Asia, the way that people still express gratitude and you know, like in India it's traditional that you always feed as well as feeding yourselves you, you make enough to feed a guest you also feed the animals around and so every action is kind of imbued with this quality to remind yourself that you are connected and so for example when you eat one of the prayers that's associated to, like just to practice but to bless the food you're acknowledging the circle of existence and everything is interconnected. So in the traditional system, I think it's not just in India, all around the world, that was very much part of our day-to-day -day life. And you know, even in the Christian, like maybe when I was a kid, it wasn't so rare for people to say grace, and we still said grace at school. I don't know if people do now. It's, I've, you know, it's pretty rare, I think, in, in the UK and in the West. Um, but if we do, it changes the quality of the food, if we, whenever, whatever we do with that recognition can be sweeter and richer and more nourishing. And it was interesting, you know, in India, at this conference I was at recently, people were talking about, wow, the, the, just the pace of the lifestyle that's kind of become dominant. And it's almost like people are too, too busy to realize what, to align with what we really want. Like a few years ago, I, I don't make New Year's resolutions as a, as a habit, but I said to myself, I do not have time to rush. I've got to try and actually enjoy what I'm doing, not rushing to the next thing. But the pressure of just making ends meet can make that quite difficult for, for a lot of us, I yeah. think. And I think it's also, it's, it's more of a, maybe a bit of an ego construct of that is that feeling we have to make ends meet it's that lack of trust yeah. in our life and how it's unfolding yeah. and that feeling that we're going to be supportive and I think that again conditioning yeah. to feel like yeah I've been we've been going through a lot of stuff in our own lives recently and, and allowing just you know okay there's so much uncertainty at the moment and we're yeah. attempting to the ego wants to feel safe and control everything yeah. But we might touch on a bit, you know, at the moment, the coronavirus is, mm -hmm. is almost sweeping the world. Or it's definitely sweeping the, the news sure. as, as such. And it's the same with other environmental things. Recently, the fires in yeah. Australia, I think there was a billion animals perished, which is, that is just, you know, it's tragic. Yeah. And the, the change in the weather and everything, it, it, there's, there's no longer, that lack of certainty is gone. Yeah, and I think that's, to me, one of the, to be able, like, I always say, in yoga, there are two qualifications to practice yoga. One is to be born, and the second is to know that I'm not in yoga. Or in other words, to know that I don't know. So they say in the Upanishads, one of the source texts for, for yoga, those who think they know, don't know. <laughs> those who know they don't know, at least know something. <laughs> And to be comfortable in uncertainty, to learn, to be okay in the uncertainty, I think that's 
one of the main aims or benefits of practice or to, to try to cultivate that and because life that's that you know it's predictably unpredictable we, we never know what's coming and so yoga is intended to help us meet that more skillfully one of the ways that a yogin is described is as a person who is always they use the word samatvam to describe yoga in the Bhagavad Gita it means evenness and the yogin is described as being the same in gain and loss in victory and defeat in getting what you want in not getting what you want and sometimes people miss, misread this as thinking that the yogi is like some kind of automaton who's always the same but what it really means as far as I understand it is that the yogin brings the same depth of presence to whatever type of situation we're confronted with so you're enjoying something, you have beautiful things come to you you're able to enjoy them fully, relish them without getting carried away you face with injustice and terror, you're able to stay centered and so navigate that as skillfully as you possibly could and so the yogin brings the same depth of presence and so is able to draw on the deepest resources of his or her awareness in the face of the uncertainty of life and so the balance of yoga is this dynamic equilibrium because when we're balanced we've got more chance of responding skillfully would, would you agree Rob? Like 100% yeah. yeah and if say for example I, I see some terrifying situation or some, some injustice if I become angry or dejected or down or frustrated what happens to my capacity to respond skillfully well, it goes drastically down doesn't yeah, it yeah so the idea is training ourselves to be balanced and centered so then we can meet life as skillfully as possibly as skillfully as possible and then actually enjoy it as best as we possibly could and learn as quickly as we possibly could there's someone I've been following quite a lot recently uh, Michael Singer his name is he's he's written some great books one's The Surrender Experiment and the other one is um, that's gone from my mind actually I've got it on my book side so and he says no matter what's ever happening the, the first thing we must do we have to accept it how it is now because yeah. often something we don't like we want to change it mm -hmm. it's like it's happened yes we have to accept it and only when we can accept it then can we move through it yeah and potentially eventually do something about it yeah. rather than think i've got a, no i don't like that my yeah. mind doesn't like that i've got to fix it straight away and that resistance i think that's the thing it's resistance to change yeah. and not allow not accepting something and then we can move through it and i think we could think about that for our entire life many people myself included will have things that have happened or remembered from my life and that has caused resistance and blockages sure. in my system yeah where if we can move into a place of more of acceptance and allow it to move through not want to change it or not allow it and i think um yeah it's it's just realising that now and to see because I see some people maybe in the 70s, 80s and if they've been so trapped in the mind, their ego for their entire life, it's almost like that's that's where the real suffering is. The suffering's mm. in the in mind. It's not necessarily outside. It's how I feel. And then I think from what you're talking about in your practice and everything, it's building that inner resilience, inner strength that no matter what happens, it's okay because I know inside me that I'm, I, I feel good and I can adapt. Yeah, I think you know it's part of the um, one um, 
and, and a man who's much older than me was commenting on it's like his perception of what, what really the practice is about it's like you put the person in prison and they're still okay you take you, you know the, my teachers say the, the, the yogi gets picked up in a Rolls Royce happy he already gets picked up on a donkey happy and the yogi's able to go here or not go there it doesn't matter because inside you have that connection um, and when we are so constantly busy externally then we can lose touch with that so for me one of the main aims of yoga practice is to to reconnect ourselves to to conscience really and because we, we have you know it's one of my Indian teachers you know, there's no such thing as a defenseless creature in the whole of existence everything that's alive has many many inbuilt support systems to help us actually thrive and I think sometimes as human beings we can get disconnected from them because we get so caught up in all this external busyness and so yoga practice is really about reconnecting to those natural support systems in ways that then make us more fortified and robust and anti-fragile in the face of the reality of life and whatever's happening outside but it's interesting one thing you mentioned earlier Rob, about the idea of the revolution that's happening and one thing I, I sometimes say is uh, I say we have to become evolutionaries rather than revolutionaries and uh, the Bob Marley song Revolution is it takes it takes it takes a revolution to make a solution and so the way I understand it is it takes going around and really having a thorough appraisal of the whole situation as it is in order to make a solution but if I think as a human as human beings if we look at our history it's like this revolutionary history there's a structure in place we perceive it as corrupt or wrong and if we fight against it, what happens? One of my Indian teachers says, the crusader gets crusaded. The freedom fighter gets good at fighting. And so if we see a system that we don't like, but then in order to try to change it, we basically fight it, playing it its own game. We take on its language, its ways. In overthrowing it, we become kind of practiced at what initially made us despise that system. And so we see throughout history we have a revolution and then the old regime is overthrown to be replaced with something that is very, very similar with just different names. And so I feel we need to learn to be evolutionaries. And this is what yoga invites us to do. Like One of the great archetypes in the Indian system is the mother. And Mother Earth knows how to recycle energy. And the mother knows how to create from within what already is to create something so beautiful, it's way beyond what she would ever have dreamed of from within the existing structure. And in creating it, she is not diminished. She is actually made more glorious and grows from it as well. And so for me, this is the idea of, you know, we have to be evolutionaries. And, also, and the practice of gratitude to recognize, we're so fortunate. Our ancestors have done so much hard work. We know so many, like which herbs we can eat, which, which foods we can eat. We don't, you know, if we want to go out foraging, we don't have to do that very dangerous testing procedure ourselves. Our ancestors have done it. So many of the structures that we've inherited, so many, in so many different fields of human knowledge, we're so fortunate to have all that. And so I feel that the real call for this time is for us to meet what is 
with all its imperfections, without getting into the blame game, without getting into the polarity, because that's the thing that I think is most, one of the things that concerns me most in the world, this ism-schism, black and white thinking and very polarised discourse. And this idea that we only have two eyes, but if we gather in a circle, and we all say this, the cent- in the centre of the circle resides the truth, even with our limited vision, our conditionings and our veilings and our woundings, we can each shed a little bit of light on the truth. And if we have the courage and the patience and the presence to actually listen to each other with deep presence, recognising that we're each carrying our own veilings and woundings, maybe we can actually find ways to work together that will benefit everybody. Because that's the thing that I find really, I say, almost disappointing about so many of the dominant systems in our society, like our, our so-called democracy, that people think is a great thing. It's so divisive, like the House of Commons with these two sides. And going back to, you know, some, like I think to Aristotle, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, like I was taught when I was writing, learning to write essays, you need to consider both sides of the argument. As if an argument has two sides. There are infinite sides to any question. And so rather than this very adversarial, trying to, one side trying to convince the other, I think we need to move towards something that's much more inclusive and consensual. And getting out of this hole of focusing on these few things that we can't agree on and instead think, well, what can we, actually, what can we agree on? How about let's, let's see how we can work towards that and trying to be more positive. Because focusing on the negative doesn't really help. And this is one of the beautiful things that yoga illustrates in the way the yoga teachings are given. If, once you've identified the problem, you don't dwell on it. Instead, you channel the energy towards, well, how can I make a solution? But looking at this, going all the way around, seeing the situation in ways that reach beyond the ways we would habitually cast it or just look, confine it to, getting a bigger, more overall picture and then working in a more consensual way. And to me, that's what yoga practice teaches because if we're going to bring ourselves into balance, we have to look into those parts of ourselves that previously we have preferred not to or haven't dared or for whatever reason have not been on our radar. Once we start to look into that, we start to realise, oh yeah, I'm also carrying all sorts of things that are not so good, not so pleasant, and I have work to do. But in the process of doing that work, we can start to become a little bit more understanding of that, oh yeah, it's normal that we have these blind spots, and maybe we can work together to, to help each other see a bit more, full, a bit of a fuller picture. Yeah. Beautiful. It's embracing our vulnerabilities, isn't mm-hmm. it, as well, and recognizing that we've all got challenges. Yeah. And I think sometimes, I think, and maybe we'll touch it like that, there's sometimes the Google, Google energy of some things, it's kind of feeling like this is how everything should, should be done, and just, I'm perfect, you just follow my path. When I much more resonate with people who are, they're saying, listen, you know what, I, I find it tough today or yesterday and this has happened in my life and the more we can be open and talk about this stuff and we don't have to, we can let, it's almost letting go of our shield 
yeah and letting the armor down a little bit yeah and it just it just releases much more ease and I think if we can do that across the world and yeah for sure rather than feeling like yeah because I think that that's fear is really the biggest problem <laughs> or one of the biggest that not 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 fear per se because there's a certain type of fear that's very healthy but for example in the kind of public discourse you know sometimes people say oh certain things just should not be done but when you say that it's almost like you're you're attacking some people because their livelihood depends on that so if you say for example oh certain things just should never be done say for example like sometimes some people think oh you should you know you should be vegan if you say that to the sheep person who's a sheep farmer and is farming a, a farm that his family's been farming for many hundreds of years it's like you're attacking that person so it's not a very promising start to to invite a change that's going to be good for everybody. Whereas if you were to say like, well, oh, massive scale industrial meat production isn't really helping the planet. Maybe we can start to find different. I mean, this is obviously <laughs> isn't the. But there are ways to invite change rather than when if you condemn somebody. It's hard to get them on side. You're going to be alienating a lot of people, and you know, yoga is about unity. So the only real unity is one that includes. So I, I feel that we need to practice the way we suggest or invite change. Because if we condemn or castigate, it's like we're creating resistance where we perhaps. So rather than create resistance, how could I create excitement about doing something more creative that's going to be more beneficial for everybody and that's going to invite let's say win-win situations rather than like oh well you know those bad people who do that bad thing they can all go to hell and the rest of us can you know it's never going to work like that like as long as we are condemning some part of a population we're never going to come to that sustainable well-being which is why I, I like what there's a, have you heard of Satish Kumar he's a conservate like he's an ecologist and um, he said when I saw him speak he said let's make all isms wasms let's make all this divisive black and white thinking a thing of the past and I think that's a beautiful idea that an ism tends to be a reaction to some imbalance but when it's very reacting against that imbalance is often maybe creating that polarity and we can maybe find a more inclusive way which is actually going to invite real evolution yeah and something that I talk about about on this podcast and it's a lot of people I'm, I'm, I interview as well it's becoming and it's a bit like you obviously especially you know talking about being a teacher and the feeling that you get from that whether it was when you were doing basketball yeah. or when you're in Thailand and you're teaching English and then eventually become a yoga teacher to, you know, you are, it's, it's that feeling of, of, of being of service to others mm-hmm. and moving from that feeling of service of self, which has dominated our culture for a long time, to move into realising that we can serve others, but actually by serving others, we're serving ourselves. For sure. You know, it's interesting that you know, I, I feel like one of my, one of my, older friends you know was kind of just having this devil's advocate discussion with me years ago 
Because there's this, the Yorkshireman's advice to his son. Do you know this? No. Are you from Lancashire? <laughs> uh, well, sort of. Lancashire slash, slash Merseyside. Because I think the Yorkshireman's advice to his son, let me, I'm not sure I'll get this completely right, but it says, uh, see all, hear all, say now, eat all, sup all, pay now, and if ever that is out for now, do it for this end. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, pretty horrible ethos to live by. But my older friend who was saying, yeah, but that makes sense now. And I says, well, not really, because that doesn't have any long-term viability. If you don't take care of other people, they're not going to take care of you. And this is the thing that, as our society has grown, we've lost touch with. When you live in a village, mutual dependency is an incontrovertible fact of daily living. And it's always, it's constantly reinforced. You know, somebody has a baby and she's not well. The neighbours help and I'm not able to nurse right now the other mother nurses everybody's helping each other so from all this from when the child's newly born to when you're an elder there's always this mutual dependency that gets reinforced and we've lost that but I would say still it's like if we are able to support other people then that's very satisfying but also there is this reciprocity that just starts to bloom. And I don't think there's any... That's enlightened self-interest. When you give to the whole, you will be supported. Um, but can we come to a win-win situation? I think we can. So, for example, like this, and this is one of the things where I think that yoga can be so helpful, because at the level of our own individual experience, Let's say there's a habit we have, and this habit, when we adopted it, it was a good survival strategy, but it's become obsolete. And that habit discounts or leaves out certain aspects of ourself. It's helped us survive in the world, but it's not going to help us thrive. Now, when I do the work to invite that part of myself that's been neglected, it could be my creativity, or it could be my physicality, or it could be my need to be still, or it could be my need to pay greater attention to my sense powers, whatever it might be. When I make the effort, let's say it's paying greater attention to my sense powers, that might mean I have to slow down and do less. But as I pay greater attention to my sense powers, it's actually like I'm doing more, because what I am experiencing, I'm experiencing more richly. So I'm doing less, but I'm experiencing more. Or let's say I give more, I need to give more time to my creativity. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some practices. I'm gonna maybe start journaling in the morning and then giving some time every week to do some type of creative play or project. That might mean again, that I have to sacrifice something else, which I might really be resistant to. But when I do it, even that thing that I had to sacrifice actually feels better because now it can work together. So let's say, for example, somebody in their job relies very much on their rational mind and their powers of analysis and they're very out of touch with their sensuous or sensory capacities. It's all about, and, and then let's say you've, you're a fantastic analyst in your job, you, you know, you've risen to the heights, you're very well respected, you've made a business, whatever, all based on this very clear, decisive, penetrative analysis. But you've neglected your, this intuitive side. 
when you start to move into the intuitive realm, you can feel very shaky because in analysis you really trust it, you know, you've practiced it, you're, you're an expert. In this intuitive realm, you're not so practiced. It can feel very intimidating. But if you keep practicing, you can realize that, oh, wow, this analysis and this intuition, they can actually support each other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not like I throw my analysis out. But I can actually support it if I actually check in with my more intuitive side as well. If I rehabilitate that, I'm actually more empowered. But I have to give myself the lived experience several times to then come to that recognition. But the lovely thing with yoga practice is that any yoga technique is an invitation to every part of ourself to participate in whatever we're doing. So if I'm doing an asana practice, for example, obviously there's an obvious physical element, but I'm also paying attention to my breath and my energy. I'm using my sense powers to help me stay balanced. I'm using my mind to concentrate on whatever the object of focus, if it's the breath or if it's the, the balance in space or if it's particular focal points in the body. And so I'm training myself in the way of doing something with all of myself. And when I do something with all of myself, how does it feel? Wow, it feels fantastic, yeah? So they say, there's a beautiful Sanskrit proverb, it says, a person whose mind is in one place, whose thoughts, sorry, whose mind is in one place, whose speech is in another place, and whose actions are in another place again, is a soul in torment. But a person whose thought, word and deed are all one, that's a great soul. And it's true, yeah, if, my mind, if I'm thinking one thing, I'm saying something else, I'm doing something else again, I'm torn, I'm split, it doesn't feel good. Whereas if my mind and my speech and my action are all aligned, ah, it feels easeful, and it feels expansive. So as we practice bringing all of ourselves into whatever we're doing, it's its own self-propelling reward. So we can start to realize, ah, it might seem initially like a sacrifice, but when I make that effort, oh, actually it feels great. And I've just got to keep making that effort and then the change becomes irresistible. And to me, that's, how, that's the magic of yoga. We just have to make, we have to invite ourselves. So you can't um, resist it. If I demand that my changing my habits, well, maybe some humans that works, but for most of us it ain't going to work. But if we keep make, extending an invitation, oh yeah, maybe, yeah, and then I try and it feels great, then naturally that will just evolve. So this idea of practicing the invitation. So when I'm doing a physical practice, you know, I mentioned already, like yoga's practical, what we do, we get good at. So when we're doing a yoga technique, it's really important that we practice how we want to feel. So in the early years of my yoga practice, there was a distinct lack of yoga, you know, as I aggressively pursued peace. <laughs> Doesn't work. But when I invite myself into a state of balance, like, yeah, yeah, that sounds, yeah, balance is all right. I'll, I'll, yeah, let's see. If I, so say, for example, I, want, I need to do some, I need to move, I need to exert myself or I need to just be quiet. And when I listen to what I really need and I invite myself into a more balanced state relative to what's going on, that practice is rewarding, that practice 
generate its own momentum. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does. And it's inspiring me to to move more back into my practice with with um, yoga. But like you said, there's many aspects of it. And one aspect of it, which I'll be sharing at the end of this podcast, is uh, the kirtan uh-huh. that you did. So I'd love to just, for people who may not be aware of what kirtan is, if you can just talk about that, that would be great. So, so the thing that's later is a recitation in, in Sanskrit, and uh, kirtan is a Sanskrit word. Um, it's one of my favorite yoga practices, or yoga techniques, let's say, practice being everything that we do. And kirtanam, the word means glorification. Kirti means glory. So one of the basic ideas is, is it not a glorious thing to be alive? And when we give ourselves permission to be fully here with our thought, our word and our action, when we give ourselves space to be congruent in the here and now, it's glorious. And so yoga techniques are intended to help remind us of the glory of life and to, to celebrate and honor and give thanks for the glory of life. So in Kirtan, we use as our support, basic, you know, basic yogic method is I give my powers of awareness something to orient towards, to gather around. So in a meditation practice, maybe I'm, fo- say for example, I'm focusing on the movements of my breath. I'm using all my sense powers and my mental focus and my body awareness to tune in to the movements of the breath. When I do an asana practice or a yogic movement practice, then the way I'm moving in space, the way I'm feeling energy and encouraging energy to flow in a more balanced, harmonious way, that becomes the focus. When I sing, the beautiful thing with the singing practice, let's say you do the same asana technique day after day after day, year after year after year, the first few times you do it, it's almost impossible that you won't experience a deeper level of, a deeper experience of yoga because you have to really concentrate to, to do the postures that are brand new for you. When you've done it a thousand times, there you are doing the practice, or it looks like it from the outside, but inside you, you know, you're thinking about, oh yeah, later I need to do this. Oh, yesterday I wish I hadn't done that, or whatever it is. But with singing, Everything gets involved very immediately because to sing is a physical act. It affects the breath and the energy. We've got to focus mentally on the melody and the words. It can be very, all the senses are involved and it can be very sensuous. And it can also invite, we, can, we do it with an emotional intent. So body, breath, mind, senses, emotions, all of them are immediately recruited. And then sound is very cherished in the Indian tradition because they recognized Everything is movement, everything is vibration. And so when we sing and we make certain sounds, very immediately we can, we can shift our vibration. And kirtan can reach the parts that other techniques aren't always able to so easily. <laughs> but with the sound, straight away we, we get right into it. And so typically in a kirtan we'll sing call and response or we'll just sing all together. And we'll sing to invoke energies that remind us of our innate capacity to include and reconcile and harmonize and come into that greater state of balanced integration that is yoga. Magic. 
It is magic, isn't it? It is. You know, the, the, like the, the, the magic of yoga, it really does. Yoga is about transformation. And when we start singing, it can really, we get an immediate experience that validates our capacity to transform. We are conscious beings. We have consciousness and we have a conscience. And so I think yoga is really about reconnecting to that conscience and helping us remember, remember, bring all the members of our being back into togetherness. Because when we do bring all of ourselves to bear on the current situation, we often recognize we've got so many more resources than we realized before. This is why some people, so in a Kirtan, for example, I always begin with the archetype Ganesha, who in the Indian system is traditionally always invoked first. Because Ganesha means the energy that unifies. So in, in India they say the first step is half the journey. So we want to start as we mean to go on. And we remind ourselves what it's all about. It's about including everything. So Ganesha is a very inclusive energy. So when we invite all the parts to participate, we have more resources available. Ganesha is also the lord of obstacles. And sometimes people like the idea of invoking Ganesha because they think, oh yeah, I can get rid of all my obstacles. But one of my friends says, no, obstacles are not on the path. Obstacles are the path. Because without obstacles, how will we find out what we're really made of? And so, when we're in a difficult situation, it's almost like we can't help but recognize more of our true capacity. The idea in yoga is let me practice meeting every moment with more of my true capacity. Let me practice doing everything I do like it was the first chance I ever had to experience it or like it's the last chance I'll ever have to experience it. And so Ganesha has also the head of an elephant and the elephant is seen as being like the sovereign of the jungle and a master of the art of living and dying which is one of the ways that yoga is described. You can't have the art of living without the art of dying. And the idea is the culmination or the crowning achievement of a human life is to die like an elephant dies, typically, like peacefully, ready, prepared. And why is the elephant able to die like that? Because they've lived being this huge creature and living in community. They live without that four-letter F word dominating their behavior. They live without being oppressed by fear. And without fear, they're able to fully inhabit the present moment. And when we fully inhabit the present moment, then we can live more fully. They say in yoga, you can actually stop creating the past. Not in the sense that we don't have past experiences, but when we live the moment fully, there's no space for regret there. So if you want to die in peace, how are we going to do it? By practicing. By practicing sleeping in peace at the end of every day. How do we do that? By living each moment every day fully. So there's no space for regret. Of course I can learn from my experiences, but I know, yeah, well I gave it my best shot and I can learn from that. And so when we sing, for example, to Ganesha, and we sing Ganesha Sharanam, which I might sing in a moment, we're saying, I take refuge, I take shelter in my own capacity to bring all of myself into the present moment. So I'm inviting myself, body, mind, senses, emotions, to all gather and cohere. 
so I can actually relish that glory of this amazing gift of being alive as a human being here and now. Amazingly said. I know um, I, I don't want to go on too much longer with this now because I feel like you've just perfectly summed up everything. But what I would like to do is is just talk a little bit about some of the events that you've got coming up in case anyone is listening to this thinking, you know, you're moving around a bit so they might yeah. be close to one of them locations where yeah. they can come in and... Well, it's very kind of you, um, So, I mean, right now, in the next few weeks, I, mean, I know that... Who knows what's going to happen with, with travel restrictions and all that, but I'm supposed to be teaching in the Lake District this week then up to Scotland for a month down to the southeast, then to the Czech Republic. Then I've got, in May this year, I've got two weekend programs in Yorkshire, Ampleforth Abbey, a very, very peaceful, tranquil setting. Uh, the 8th, the 10th of May is a, just a, it's a, I've done it like the last five or six years, it's just a, a weekend program. And I often feel, you know, it's hard to really have a retreat just for a weekend because by the time we've really arrived, it's like it's time to go again. <laughs> But this setting, it's very tranquil, very peaceful. People have been meditating there for a long time. So the intention on this weekend is to, it's like a yogic empowerment weekend. You can come and learn practical things that you can then weave into your day-to-day -day movement, meditation. We'll also be singing and we'll be looking at some aspects of practical yoga philosophy. And the following weekend is called Moving Men. And that's specifically for men and kind of looking at our relationship to our bodies and working with movement practices, meditations, some inquiry work and working in a circle, um, group practices. So basic, the basic idea is I've, you know, I've done a lot of, any chance I get I tend to go to a men's work program because teaching yoga over these years often there's a lot of women and the chance to, to have that time with other men is really valuable for me. And I've noticed that a lot of the men I've met really they want to have a a close relationship with their own body and so the focus of that weekend is really on how I can have a movement practice in the reality of my own life so we're going to learn simple things that you know if you're a competitive athlete or if you never really do a lot of movement at all things you can weave into your day-to-day -to, -day to help create that balance from the from the ground up and working with the elements um, and in terms of my work in general I mean this year a new decade and I felt like new things are happening and I think I'm going to be in India in the winters for the next, certainly next year, providing that that's possible. Maybe run a retreat in Sri Lanka, a longer immersive course, and then I'm probably going to go to Costa Rica again if that's possible. I've been looking for a place to make a base for many years, still haven't found it. Um, but I do feel that in terms of more work with the Sanskrit in India and working with Indian groups and the Latin world is also calling me more so um, I imagine that the year is going to be kind of in three segments and if you're interested in the programs I do then on my website always says what's coming up amazing yeah I'll include all links to to them with the show notes and stuff so okay. people, can, people can definitely check them out and and explore and I'm, I'm interested in and one particular one as well, the move of men one, so I'll see yeah. if, it, if it flows for me mm -hmm. with, with my, um, the way things are unfolding for me. But you touched on then about finding a bit of a base. Yeah. And like, I feel the pull to Costa Rica at some point. Mm. I'm very much 
there's no army mm. it's completely renewable energy mm. this, it looks so green and lush and yeah. the, the lifestyle well on Instagram it looks <laughs> <laughs> yeah for, for me it was interesting that it was a place that I I heard of again and again from various friends for many years then I, I had, was invited to go and teach there in 2018 and for some years I, I'd when I was a kid I dreamt of um, various places with the ocean, like this kind of tropical ocean. And I always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I, I doubted I ever would because I was so far and I can't justify going there, just, you know. But then I was invited to teach in Hawaii. And the first time I went, I was able to be there for three and a half weeks on Kauai. And I guess I could say it was almost a life-changing experience because as a boy I used to go and stay every summer with a French family who lived by the coast and I always loved swimming in the sea but I would get, I'm you know, quite skinny and I would always get cold so I'd swim for half an hour and then after have to because I'm cold I'll swim for an hour and that's the limit but I had some really powerful experiences swimming in the sea when I was a kid just like this, this feeling of beauty and connecting to, to nature and prayer almost and then when I was in Hawaii I just the first, as soon as I arrived and I went twice to work and it was like just as soon as I arrived there I felt amazing and um, and swimming in the sea there was just so like almost ecstatic and I've worked in the mountains quite a lot and really enjoyed that but I was always curious I, I'm different water seems so important for me I do feel this strong connection to that element and so I thought once I went to Costa Rica to, to work I also went to, to explore a couple of places on the coast and then last year as I've been given more time to the, I thought this is a perfect place to go and write the book and so I went last year for 75 days in one place and it was just super simple life I just I walked everywhere I, I'm not vegetarian I buy fish from the local fishermen and coconuts, I can see the guy harvesting them. Local farmers deliver to the organic shop once a week. Other guys come by, you know, with their produce, they drive their pickup with their own produce. Super simple, just cooking for myself and every day with the ocean. And it was like the whole trip, it was, every, it was like, I would say it's just like prayer and connecting to the elements. And it was, I just found it very healing and very cleansing. And um, so, I, and then I was just in Sri Lanka by the ocean again, and I was just like, wow, yeah, I think I need to listen to this. Like, I'm, I've got to this stage of life, and I haven't found a place where I really feel I want, you know, that it feels like this is the place to be based to share the work I want to share. So it feels like, okay, that's the reality that. For me, it's not. You know, it's a bit unusual, but to, to continue to be in India and maybe to be in Costa Rica and then some share in Europe in between feels like at the moment that that feels what what I'm called to. Um, I'd, I'd I'd love to find a place where I can do deeper immersive work, work with people over a longer period. Like when I taught in Japan and Thailand initially. I was teaching in schools and I would see all the kids in the school once a week or occasionally twice. And I enjoyed that work a lot, but 
when I moved to the university and I was working with a far fewer students, but we would do a really quite intense work over a semester, then we'd, we'd go on a journey together and we'd all learn and grow. And I, I want more of that type of work. So I've done some immersive courses and then in Mysore I've run many courses over the years where we work with the text. But that's what I want to do more of. But what I've experienced myself in being in places like Costa Rica is that when we are and not just got also places like in, in more wilder settings in the mountains and also in the Pacific Northwest in the States when we have the opportunity to to live much more simply and really see where food comes from and sweat for our food and the reconnection to those natural gifts it can really change people's lives quite quickly, I, I feel. I, I've witnessed it in myself and others who've been on programs in the mountains or by the, by the ocean. That they can have the type of experience that it really does make a transformation. Um, and I feel that that's, that's can help us so much as a species if we can just reconnect more that we are. We just, we're parts of nature and we need to play our part in helping nature evolve, not trying to dominate it. But Costa Rica and also it's very beautiful. The ocean's just so amazing. I just the ocean's so so powerful, so cleansing. And you also kind of see you can when you see plastic on the beach and you know you realise, okay. And then you might go and pick it up, but um, I've witnessed many people have quite like significant experiences that change the way they do certain things from being in that type of environment. So sometimes people question the ethics of traveling to learn, but for me, pilgrimage is a key part of pretty much every spiritual tradition. And so it's not about, not really so much about what we do, but how we do it and, and with what intention. And obviously there are some things that we want to avoid certain types of action, but I certainly feel that I've had I've lived this life of a I've been tra you know, I've been travelling. When I was those seventy five days in Costa Rica, that's the longest I've been in one place for more than a decade. Uh, which was wonderful. But at the same time I think there are a lot of advantages to going to a place that kind of challenges your status quo and gives you different types of experience. That could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> I know it could, couldn't it? We're about two hours in and I'm like, yeah, it could definitely could go on. Um, it sounds, I, I hear, listen to you talk about that and the journey you've gone on and living, you know, the nomad mm. and the existence. And I think a lot of us, can get super inspired listening to that and yearn for for that because it's that feeling of freedom mm. and you the great thing with you in your life is you can you really can if something comes up and an exciting opportunity comes you can be like yeah there's, there's almost there's no thought of thinking oh no the mortgage the job you know the you know, yeah. it's, it's like and it's having that freedom to and i'm sure like anything there's challenges because sure, yeah. you know that's part of life, and there'll be times where maybe you want 
something a bit more might feel a bit more secure and a bit yeah. more of a base um, but maybe that'll come in Costa Rica for you or yeah. you know um, but yeah it's, it's just lovely um, sitting down and talking to you and I'm sure this is going to make a great episode and inspire plenty of people to either deepen their practice or even begin it so um, I feel like you know because we haven't seen each other for so long like, oh no it's just kind of like we've got reacquainted and now I can imagine like a more a more focused conversation on yeah. on a particular topic but yeah. thank you Rob yeah. no it's been great talking to you yeah so there's today's episode all wrapped up and um, if you want to find out more about James I'll include links in the show notes to this on my website and to his events now obviously his events have kind of been all sort of like put on hold like everything else has at the moment but he is doing online classes now so you can check out them I would um, greatly recommend them as well and so yeah I hope you guys enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend if you have and we're going to play out today with another chant by James a little bit longer this one and I found this one to be extremely soothing just beautiful so anyway guys until next time have a good one Om Gananam Taganapatikam Avamahi Kavinka Vinam Upamashravastamam Jeshtarajam Brahmana Brahmanaspate Anashanvanutivisirasadanam Om Gam Tatpurushaya Vidmahi Vakratundaya Dhimahi Tannorandhuf Prachorayati Om Gangana Patayinama Om Gangana Patayinama Om Shreema Ganapatayinama Om Namaste Astu Bhagavan Vishveshvaraya Mahadevaya Triambakaya Tripurantakaya Trikagnikalaya Kalagniradraya Nirakantaya Mrityanjayaya Sarveshvaraya Sadashivaya Sriman Mahadevaya Namaha Shri Valmiki Ramayani Aditya Stotram Tatoyutta Parishrantam Samarichantayastetam Ravan and Jagratu Drishtva Yutaya Samopastetam Daiva Taischa Samagamia Drishtam Apyagatoram Upagamiya bravidramam magasthyo bhagavan rishihi Rama Rama mahabaho ashrino guhyam sanatanam Yena sarvanarin vitsa samari vijayashyasi Arityaridayam punyam sarva shatru vinashanam Jayavahanjapanityam akshayam paramam shivam Sarva Mangara Mangalyam Sarva Papa Pranashanam Chinta Shoka Parashamanam Ayur Vartanamuttamam Rashmimantan Samutyantan Deva Suranamaskritam Pujayasvavivasvantam Paskaram Puvanishwaram Sarva Devatmakohisha Tejasvirashmipavanaha Yishadeva Suraganan Lokan Patigavastivihi 
ईश ब्रह्मा च विष्णुश्चे शिवस्कंद प्रजापति महेंद्रो दन दक्षालो यमसोमो यपांपति पितरो वसवसादिया अश्विनो मरुतो मनुहु आयोर्वन्नफ प्रजाफ प्राणरतकर्ता प्रभाकर आरित्यसवेता सूर्यः खगः पुष्यगबस्तेमान स्वर्णसद्रेशोपानोरेरन्यरेतारिवाकरः हरिदश्वसहस्रारचिसप्तसप्तीमारिच्छिमान चिमेरोन्मतनश्चमुष्ठवश्चामायतन्नकोमिश्वमान यरन्यगर्भशिशिरस्तपनोस्करोरवी अग्निगर्भोरितेव पुत्रशंकशिशिरनाशनः व्योमनातस्तमुपेरीरक्यजुस्सामपारगः घनविष्टेरपामित्रोविन्यवीतीप्लवंगमः आतपीमंदरीमृत्युपिंगरसायवतापनः कवीर विश्व महातीजारक्तसायवाबोधबाबा नक्षत्रग्रहतारानामदिपो विश्वपावनः तेजसाम अपितेजस्वीद्वारशात्मन्नमोस्तुते नमः पूर्वाय गिराये पश्चिमायाद्राये नमः ज्योतिर्गनानाम पतायिरेनारेपतायि नमः जयाय जयबंद्राय हरिश्वाय नमो नमः नमो नमः सास्रामिशो आरित्याय नमो नमः नमः उग्राय वीराय सारंगाय नमो नमः नमः पद्मप्रबोधाय प्रचंडाय नमः स्तुते ब्रह्मेशानाचितेशाय सूरायारित्यवर्चसीम बास्वतेशायवाबक्षाय रोद्राय वपुष्येनमः तमोक्नाय हिमक्नाय शत्रुक्नाय मेतात्मनि कृतक्नक्नाय देवाय ज्योतिशाम बतायनमः तप्तचामीकरापाय हराये विश्वकर्मणि नमस्तामो बिनिक्नाय रुचायेलोकसाक्षिनि नाशयतीशाय पुतम् तमीवस्त्रजदेप्रभुः पायतीशदपत्येश वर्षत्येशगबस्तिभि येशसुप्तेशु सच्चागार्ति बुद्धेशु परिनिष्टितः येशचेवाग्निहोत्रन्चे परन्चेवाग्निहोत्रनाम देवाश्चक्रतवश्चेवकतुनाम बलमीवचेम यानिकृत्याने लोकेशु सर्वेशु परमप्रभुः येनमापत्सुकृत्येशु कांतारेशु पायेशुचे कीर्तयन पुरोशह कश्चन नावसीरतीरागवम् पूजायस्वीनमीकाग्रो देवरीवम्नगतपतम् येतत्रिगुणेतन्जप्त्वायुधेशुविचायश्यति अस्मिंशने महाबाहो रावणन्द्रन्यश्यसि येवमुक्त्वा तथोगस्तो जगामसायतागतम् 
Om Shanti 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 Shanti